You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. We, my wife and I, Zoe, uh, love Bethany and Mulch is his name. We've known you since junior high, I think. So long time we used to do youth ministry and so uh, got to officiate their wedding and so they're like family to us. And so it's really neat that uh, we, we prayed that God would call them to come help us start this church. And so God has answered their prayers and we're really excited for that. So thanks for those awesome announcements, Beth. Um, super blessed to be with you as well. So uh, excited about what God is doing. And just a few more notes on the family service next week. If you have kids, we're going to have um, kind of some goodie bags of like things to color and stuff and hang out in their seats as we do that. We're going to have hot chocolate and some candy and make it fun and a little shorter than normal. Um, but we are going to, um, that is going to be our Christmas Eve service, even though it's in the morning. But um, we're going to celebrate uh, our, the birth of our Savior together. So feel free to invite family and friends and um, those that maybe don't know the Lord or would say yes to you, uh, maybe on Christmas and Easter, those type of people. Um, feel free to bring them, and uh, we will be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ uh, next Sunday. Amen? Amen? So without further ado, we're going to be getting into the book of Mark, as we always do. So we're going through the gospel of Mark and we're in Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. So we're actually finishing the chapter 3 this morning. We're doing quite a few verses, but they're all interconnected here. Title of today, and uh, not a light subject at all, is The Unforgivable Sin. So it's uh, the subject that some of us may be cringing over or wondering about, but it's this idea that there is a sin that is unforgivable, and Jesus talks about it, and so we're going to get into that and look into that this morning. So why don't you read with me Mark 3, 20 through 35, um, reading out the New Living Translation. I have it on the screen for you. If you don't have that translation, you can follow along, but it says this, <clears throat> Mark 3, verse 20. It says, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds, uh, excuse me, the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by a civil war will collapse. Similarly, if a uh, family splintered by feuding will fall apart, and if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, 
Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you that uh, there is power in it that is God-breathed and God-inspired. And Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding into it this morning, specifically into this maybe hard and difficult, even fearful subject. Um, We pray that you'd give us understanding into the text, into the context of, of it. But also, Lord, that you would use your word to continue to transform us into your image. We know that you've created us to be image bearers, to bear the image of Jesus to the world. We know that it starts with our own hearts. It starts with our our own selves looking inside and allowing you by the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, to retrain our mind and retrain our actions and the way that we do things and the way we speak. And God, we want to corporately say that we surrender to your work this morning. Like whatever you want to do, God, we want it. You are the reason why we gather and we say yes and amen to what you have for us. And so have your way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we all know, forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. Like at the the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ is forgiveness. It's like the foundation of Christianity, right? The forgiveness of sins could be said it's like synonymous with the cross. The, the, the finished work of Jesus on the cross is synonymous with forgiveness, right? The death, death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross proved to have power and victory over the power and penalty of sin. Like this is a basic foundational gospel truth. It's what makes up Christianity is that Jesus forgives our sins, right? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he he goes as far as to say, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. And why he said that was that when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, he defeated the power and penalty of sin and we now share in that. We share in that victory and that forgiveness when we have faith and believe in Jesus. And most of us, if not all of us in this room, have repented of our sins and we have been forgiven. Like we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we've experienced what Peter would say after that that, um, sermon uh, after Pentecost, that times of refreshing would come as we're forgiven. And for the most part, in this room, for a lot of us, we have a testimony And part of our testimony, the huge part, the start of it, is that we've experienced forgiveness of our sins. Like we've experienced forgiveness of trespasses and transgressions and a life of rebellion against God. We've come to know the truth. We've repented. We've turned away from rebellion and a life of sin. We've turned to God. We all have a testimony uh, testifying of forgiveness. And for some of us, You know, we've lived a long time in rebellion to Jesus, and we've done a a lot of really horrible things. You know, some of our testimonies, like, we're really, really far off from the Lord, and we've done a lot of horrible things, and it's mind-blowing to us 
that Jesus freely gives us a new start. Like it is mind-blowing. This idea of being born again, like spiritually born again, like start over, push the reset button, is the gospel. And it's, it's hard to comprehend because it's unbelievable. But it is believable. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So it makes the gospel so beautiful. Right, the word of God over and over describes and tells of God's act of forgiveness of sins through the finished work of the cross. The Old Testament, um, through the prophet Isaiah, it described it this way. Isaiah 1.18, it says, Though our sins are, were as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They were, uh, though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. The psalmist would, would also say that when we're forgiven of our sins, Psalm 103, 12, that God removes our sins as far as from the east is from the west. My point in saying all this is that forgiveness is the best part of becoming a Christian. Right? It's absolutely the thing that will bring us the most joy and the most peace, and it shows us the most love. The fact that Jesus makes us saints from sinners, Right? that we're lost and now we're found, that we were hopeless, but because of his forgiveness, we now have hope, and that hope is an eternal hope. So, in light of that, with a text like this today, it's not only alarming, but it's downright scary. Like, wait, 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 back up, Jesus. What are you saying? Like, what are you talking about? Because in many ways, not being able to be forgiven of a sin is the scariest thing that could ever happen, right? Like if the gospel and the good news of Jesus and the forgiveness is the best thing, then if there is a sin, if there is something that we can do that God will not forgive, meaning that it leads to a life apart from God for all of eternity, that is the scariest thing that could happen, right? Right? But this is the idea that is brought up by Jesus himself that there is one sin that is unforgivable or there's a sin that is unpardonable that we can commit. That there's something that humanity can do that we cannot experience or receive all that I just talked about, all that forgiveness. Meaning there's no way to heaven or, or there's an eternal sin that we can commit. And so most likely if you have not heard about this before, you are probably freaking out right now. Uh, or maybe, if you have, you're still like, there's two questions that would pop into your head when you hear about this. What is it and have I done it? That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Right, when you hear that there's, there's this one thing that you cannot do that God will not forgive you over, you're like, okay, well, tell me what it is and I just want to make sure I haven't done it or that I won't do it so that I'm good. And we're going to get there. And I'm going to address those things, but I will leave you hanging for a bit to work through the rest of the text, and uh, sorry for that big hook um, in advance, but there is importance in looking at the context of our text, because a few weeks ago, we talked a little about context, and we learned that context is everything when you're trying to interpret and study the Bible. What's What's in or around that verse, the story that that verse is in, matters so much to what that verse means. And so we're going to, we will address those things, those two questions that you have. Um, but also he taught a lot more than just that in uh, the scene in this house in Capernaum this morning. So let's just look at our text, and then I'm going to wait kind of to the end to answer those questions. So you'll be on your toes the whole time, hopefully. 
engaged, not falling asleep. Um, my hands move enough that you probably don't fall asleep. So, um, First, we get a lens here into Jesus' family. So in our text, verses 20 through 21, the scene is that Jesus enters a house and, be, and crowds begin to gather again, right? This is the story of Jesus' life right now. Crowds and crowds are coming to see him. They're coming to receive uh, truth. They're coming to receive healing. There's demon-possessed people that are uh, coming to Jesus. I mean, people are coming from near and far. And it says here that soon there were so many people that his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Right, And so Jesus enters a house. Most likely this is Capernaum. It's probably Peter's house because he spends a lot of time there. But again, there's so many people. He can't even, there's no time. There's not enough space to even eat. And it says here that his family heard what was happening and they tried to take him away. And they said he's out of his mind. So what we see here is a reminder that Jesus actually has an earthly family that he was born into, right? The virgin birth, which we celebrate at Christmas, that uh, he was born through his mother, Mary, supernaturally, but also uh, Mary's husband, his earthly father is Joseph. But also in Matthew chapter 13, we hear that Jesus has at least four brothers and some sisters. So he's got like a whole earthly family. Um, born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth, and he's part of a family unit here. And it says that his family heard what was happening, just like everyone else, and they came um, kind of to take him away. They thought he was kind of crazy. And so we're not really sure who exactly out of his family it was. It could have been extended family. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was part of that immediate family, but nonetheless, they came because they heard what Jesus was doing. But unfortunately, they didn't just come to like witness or partake or, or just watch, right? Because think about you hear like your brother or your cousin and like this guy Jesus, that's your brother or your cousin, he's doing all these unbelievable miracles and people are getting healed. You'd be like, seriously? He's just a carpenter. What are you talking about? Like he's my brother, he's my cousin. You'd think you'd go and just observe what was happening. But that's not what happened. They went to bring him home. Literally, uh, some translations say take him away or came to restrain him. This idea, restrain or, or to take away, means to lay hold of and is used elsewhere as a term of arrest. Like to stop someone and take them away is what their, his family is doing right here. Because they thought he had become what a lot of people had thought is that he's just like gone crazy. He's, he's a religious fanatic. He's claiming to be able to forgive people's sins. I'm not really sure how all these miracles happen, but he's crazy and we got to get him out of here. And, and, and largely, you know, family names, it was a big deal back then. And, and in a lot of ways, they're probably fearful of like the shame that Jesus was bringing upon like the family name. And so they're like, dude, the religious leaders are coming, like people are stirring. Yes, yeah, some people think he's the son of God, but dude, he's our brother, he's our cousin. Like, he's crazy, let's get him out of here. He's out of his mind, they say. He's going crazy. And then what happens is they have this interaction with religious leaders about a few things, which we're gonna wait, because that's the conversation, we're gonna wait to that. But let's skip to verses 31 through 35, because it talks a bit more about 
Jesus' family and what takes place there. But what he does is he defines who his family really is. So part of his family comes to take him away because he's crazy. And then what happens in verse 31, it says that his mother and brothers came to see him. So they probably weren't the original ones. It was probably someone else in the family. But they came to see him, and they stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. Right? The house is so crowded that his mom and his brothers can't even get in. There was a large crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mom and your brothers are, are outside asking for you. And remember, this is too crowded. They wanted to speak with him, so they sent word for him. And this is what Jesus' response is. It's very interesting and maybe jarring at first. His response is, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked around, at, uh, around him and said, this is to the, the crowd of kind of random people here. Look, these are my mothers and mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wait, I mean, this is a, this is a jarring response. Like the first thing that maybe would come to mind is: is he denying or rejecting his earthly family? I mean, it kind of sounds like a public dis, de, uh, uh, you know denouncing of them. Like it's really rude, Jesus. Like your mom and your brothers are outside; they're asking for you. Like, dude, who are they? Like, that's kind of what he's doing. He says, well, who are my mother and brothers? You all are. Those of you that do the will of God are my family. And again, he's not doing that. He's not denouncing them, denying or rejecting his earthly family. But he's, he's turning the attention now to a more important family. And again, this is, this is confronting the family unit. This is confronting the importance of family in society. And so this is jarring to people that he would even do this, but his point is that he wants to bring up the idea of the family of God. Again, he's using this interaction as a moment to teach on and display the kingdom of God coming forth and why it changes things and the differences there are in it. So he points to the crowd that there's a greater reality and a greater purpose to a family. And what he does here is he gives us a bit of theology or an understanding of some doctrine of who is a child of God. And this is a, this is a debated subject. Many people believe, like many, many people that claim to be Christians believe that everyone, every, every person, every, every human is a child of God and that all humanity one day or in one way will end up with God. Everybody, every, everyone that God's created, man or woman or child, is a child of God. And you know what? One day, it's just going to all end up, and we're going to be with God, and it's going to be good. This belief, I believe this false belief, is called universalism. Universalism would believe that all of creation are children of God, and that there is no hell, and that a loving God will end up receiving everyone. That, that's universalism. There's some big names in the Christian world that believe this and teach this, and there's entire churches that, that, uh, that believe this um, as truth. But I see it as a fundamental contradictory to what we believe and what the gospel says. And here, Jesus not really meaning to, he debunks this. Like, he, that's not what Jesus says here. He would have said, well, everyone in here 
is my family. Everyone in here is a child of God. He doesn't say that. He adds, everyone who does God's will is my mother or brother or sister. So what Jesus says is that the family of God, the sons and daughters of God, are the ones that have come to faith, they believe in Jesus Christ, and through that faith are living for and striving to be obedient to God's will. Because that's, as believers, what, what we strive to do. Like, we've come under the rule and reign of Jesus. We've given our lives to the Lord. Like, he's the Lord of our lives now. And so we strive, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to obey God's word and his will for our life. That's what a Christian is. That is not what a non-Christian does. Like, a non-Christian, a non-believer, those that do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they do not try to do the will of God. They maybe try to be a good person. Maybe there's some tenets of their life that they, they, they that are biblical, or they're a good. They, they have high morals or good morals, but they it's different from doing the will of God. What he says here is that anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. But the thing is, like the, the beauty in what he's saying is that there is acceptance and adoption into God's family, and it is available to all. That's the heart of the gospel that, that, that we believe in. Like John 3, 16 and 17, like a classic verse that I'm sure many of us um, know or, you know, have it known by memory. It's that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, that, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Like the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is available for all, but not everyone automatically is a child or a son and daughter of God. It's those that believe and do God's will that you are accepted and adopted into that family. But you absolutely are accepted and adopted into the family of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul to the Romans, Romans 8, 14 through 17, he beautifully puts it. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call God Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are children, we are heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. What, is that, that, what that's saying is that when we're born again, we're, we're given God's spirit. And due to those things, it now defines us as the beloved children of God. And so this is, this is what's happening here. There's actually a lot put into what Jesus just said, and, and, and that's just part of it. But when we believe, when we give our lives to the Lord, we are accepted and adopted as co-heirs with Christ, as sons and daughters, and we can now call God Abba, Father. That should be something that we rejoice and celebrate over. But on to the main attraction. I know I'm not, you're still like, hey, tell me about the unforgivable sin. I know that's good. I've made this long, so I'm getting there. So here we go. Back to verses 22 through 30. It's the conversation with the religious leaders and the unforgivable sin. So verse 22, 
these religious leaders, uh, the teachers of the religious law, who have arrived from Jerusalem, said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. So the teachers of the law travel from Jerusalem. That's AKA headquarters. And uh, Jesus is in the north of Israel in this little region of Galilee, and he's been stirring up some trouble, and they've come to make a determination of who this man really is. Right, we've, we've seen over and over the last month, these scribes and Pharisees are, are coming against Jesus and they're claiming that he's committing blasphemy. Like he, he's, he's crazy, he's, he's a religious fanatic and so word has traveled to the superiors in Jerusalem and they've come to make a determination on what to do. Galilee is like um, some remote small town on like an outer island and Honolulu is like the Jerusalem, right? And there's these big guns and our head honchos and they're coming to check things out. That's kind of the same idea. There's this thing, we heard about it and it's like we, we heard that Jesus is doing this thing and we got to come check it out ourselves and figure out what to do. And they question him right away. Like we see from this eyewitness account of Peter that's written down by Mark, it's not like they stay a while. It's not like they spend a few days. They just see what Jesus is doing and they jump right into the question or the, the statement that he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power. Like that's their assessment. All that you're doing is not from God, it's from Satan. The powers of darkness are giving you the ability to do what you're doing. So instead of watching or even believing they attribute his power and his healings and his miracles not to God, but to Satan. That he isn't sent by God, but rather by Satan. And their assessment is that what Jesus is doing is satanic. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that is their assessment, though. They are attributing the power and the healings and the miracles not to God, but to Satan. And this is what Jesus' response is. Verse 23, he calls them over and he responds to them with an illustration. He's going to be using a lot of these. It's a parable to respond to their claim. Um, we're going to get into a lot of parables, but he responds with this illustration or this story, this parable. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. And then he says, let me illustrate this further. If that doesn't make sense to you, let me tell it again in a different way. He says, who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. What he's doing is he, he reminds them that he has cast out demons, he has defeated darkness, and he's rebuked evil spirits. But his point is, because I do those things, how does that work in your logic of me being from Satan? Like, if I'm from Satan, why would I be fighting against my own, my own guy? Like, why would I fight against him if I'm, if I'm from him? What you're describing is a civil war that Satan's kingdom is fighting against itself. That's his, this is his response in a way of illustration. He says, it doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? Why would Satan fight Satan? What would be the purpose of that? And to further his point, he says, 
How is it that I have the ability to overthrow darkness? It's because I'm more powerful. So he says, if that didn't make sense to you, the only way that I'm able to cast out demons and to have power over the darkness is because I'm bigger and I'm better. That's what he's saying. That's the only way it works. And so he uses this illustration of the strong man. And he says, how is it that, that someone can go into a house and plunder someone's good? It's because that person is more powerful than the person that's getting stolen from or hurt in this case. So in other words, Jesus' answer to them by way of parable is this, that your assessment of me is illogical and wrong. It would be like a hashtag boom moment, right? It would just be like, that doesn't make sense. If I'm from Satan, how could I be fighting against him? That's a civil war. And the only way that I can even cast out demon is because I'm more powerful than him. You don't, that doesn't make sense on what you're saying. But then he goes further. Then he drives it home. And this is, this is, this is our verse this morning. This is one of them, is the blasphemy of the Spirit. He says, right after that, he says, I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Stop there for a second. Everything, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. And, and Paul would even testify to this, that he was a blasphemer. He was the chief of sinners. But he describes throughout two-thirds of the New Testament how by the grace of God he's been forgiven even though he did such horrible acts. Right? Paul was a murderer of Christians. He was a blasphemer. But God forgave him. So he's, he's kind of referring to that. Like, I'll forgive any sin and any blasphemy, but, verse 29, Anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin of eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Right off the bat, I will say that this verse is debated. There are many interpretations of this and what it means, and they're all across the board. Uh, through the context of what it said and through study, I will give you my interpretation of what I believe it to say. But again, everyone has their different interpretation. There's a lot of really good churches um, right on theologically that just very much differ on what this means. But all that said, believe that with context and with study that the unforgivable sin is when you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. Like, that is what's happening here, right? That's, that's by plain reading. He said, the reason I'm saying this, verse 30, is that you said that I'm possessed by an evil spirit, and that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You are attributing me being filled with the Holy Spirit, or you're attributing the work of the Spirit to the work of Satan, I, I would add to it that in its original context that it would mean that it's knowingly, willingly, and persistently attributing to Satan the works of God done by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. I would say it's a, a knowingly, willingly, and persistent attribute to Satan the works of God, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's many pastors and theologians that would, that would take this route. Uh, one is, is David Platt. You, you may know him from many of his books. Uh, he says this. He says this is what 
the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's if someone speaks against the Holy Spirit verbally and continually and will, with willful and malicious intent that reveals a hardened heart beyond the possibility of repentance, there is no forgiveness and they are guilty of an eternal sin. Um, another theologian, William Lane, said it this way. He said, in this historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscience and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God through Jesus' word and acts, specifically the Holy Spirit. Like, th- this is like a definition, or this is different views, um, but in a nutshell, it's the constant, deliberate, willful rejection of the power of the Holy Spirit, and not only that, but it's saying, well, what the Holy Spirit's doing his work, his power, his effects, that's actually satanic. Those are from Satan. They're not from God, but it's exactly what these guys are, are getting to in our text this morning. But I think there's some key points to note that will help us kind of understand it a little bit more. Number one is that this sin is a sin of full knowledge. You can't mistakenly blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Like, you can't just like, oh my gosh, I had a bad day, or I lived all these years in rebellion to God, and I, I, maybe I did it. I don't know. It, it's, that's not how it works. It's a sin of full knowledge. You know what you're doing. The second is it's an ongoing disposition of the heart that resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Like, it's ongoing. It's not one time. It's not one off. It's you reject the power and the conviction and the leading and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. It's also, it's like a verbal act that attributes the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. That's what we see in our text this morning. Also, it's like a willful rejection of, God, of God's grace in Jesus. And what's important to note is it's rooted in unbelief. Like, you do not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, it is a, it is a sin a Christian can't commit because... It's rooted in unbelief. Like, as a Christian, you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. You believe in, in, in the basic idea of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And so, like, if you're a born-again believer, it's like, you, you didn't do that. And if you're here just, like, kind of worried that you've done this, then you, you probably haven't done this. Like, if you're worried that you've done this, that means, like, you're, you're conscious, you're aware, you care about, you, you know, you, you believe in hell, you believe in the consequences of sin. Like, if you are worried, like, oh my gosh, I live this horrible, resistant life to God, and, like, I don't even know how I'm doing right now, I probably did it. Like, you, you didn't do it. I mean, this is a willful rejection of the work of the Spirit in the world and attributing that work to Satan. In a nutshell, doing this is not easy. I do believe that it it can be done, but it's not easy or it's something you can just wonder if you did or didn't do. It's not just even like an ongoing resistance to God or his truth, but it's a, a deliberate, persistent, conscious rejection of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And I think we see that, and the reason why um, I believe that is the interpretation, because in context, that's exactly what the religious leaders have been doing for most of Mark. 
they have been declaring that he is not from God, but he's committing blasphemy. Blasphemy by nature is claiming to, um, you're claiming to be God when you're not. Or in this case, they're claiming that what Jesus is doing is from Satan. And in context, he's saying, you are claiming that the Holy Spirit is not from God, it's from Satan. And so, I believe that it's really hard to do, actually. I think you can do it, but I think it's not easy, and it's not something that if you're here and you're worried about that you, you've probably done. But to be clear, Jesus doesn't even necessarily say that these teachers were doing it. Like He doesn't say, like, you have committed it. He just is using this opportunity to bring up this point, and it's a warning to the scribes. You know, maybe they've committed it, or maybe they haven't, but when they see the work of the Holy Spirit, they call it the work of Satan. And at least they're at the brink of doing it. I mean, that's what it says here. But I don't want to leave us there, because it's kind of, like, depressing. In some ways. I want to leave us with this, with this. The fact that Jesus says that he'll forgive anything else besides that. All right? Scripture tells us all over that we'll be forgiven of our sins. But this is Jesus himself speaking to the crowds. And he says, I'm going to write it in the sand. I'm going to tell you the truth. I will forgive anything that you've ever done except just blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is really hard to do and really deliberate. But I hope that that would, that would bring such hope to those of us in here that believe that like we're too dirty or we're too far off or we've sinned too much or like the things that, that we've done, God will never forgive us over. That's a lie. Like that's a lie from the enemy. Because what the word of God clearly said out of the lips of Jesus, red letters, means Jesus said it in your Bibles, is that he will forgive anything besides this one thing. And again, but I hope that, I know for some of us, we maybe like grew up in the church and, you know, sometimes we can struggle because like, You've been pretty good your whole life, and you've sinned, but you feel like God forgive you. But for some in this room, I'm sure that you're like, dude, I have done things that I, that were horrible, and I've hurt people, and like, I feel like I've done this and that and the other, and how could God ever forgive me? Well, here it is. God said, I will forgive you. And what he did was he showed that he would by going to the cross for you and I and dying and, and rising again three days later to give us the free gift of forgiveness. No one is too far off and no, you haven't done too many bad things. Because that's so often the truth. We see people that have been in a life of prostitution or a lifestyle of drugs or in and out of prison or whatever it is. Right? And we think we're too far off. And today's truth would be like, no, you are not. Come unto me and I will make you a beloved child of the most high God. That is the truth that we see in the scripture today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, this truth. That there is... Um, that your arms are open wide to receive us. 
whether that's the first time or we continue kind of just to struggle and fall and, and, and struggle with this life and sin and rebellion, thank you that your word says that you are quick to forgive us. And Lord, even in light of um, some, some more thicker theological truths, instead of being fearful of this, this unforgivable sin, we ask that it would just cause us to become nearer to you. Like just that we want more of you. If there's anything else in our life that we need to repent of or give to you or, or just surrender, we want to do that, Lord. We, wanna, we do want to take it as, as a warning, but also we want to be reminded of the beauty and wonder and amazing grace that you've given us in forgiveness. God, we didn't deserve to be forgiven. We didn't be de deserve to be washed as white as snow. We don't deserve to be called saints. We don't deserve to be your children, but you've made us that through the cross and through the forgiveness of sins. God, thank you that you exchanged our sin and you gave us your righteousness. That you literally took our sin upon your shoulders and died in our place, and in return, you've given us your righteousness, your right standing with God. And so we rejoice and celebrate and, and worship you this morning for your forgiveness and for your adoption of us into your family. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.